Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. In this episode, BC Ministry of Agriculture Organic Industry Specialist Emma Holmes in conversation with Miranda Hart, Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at UBC Okanagan. A good deal of Miranda's work focuses on the biology of soil, and in this conversation, we'll learn about the tricky business of studying soil microbes, the trickier business of trying to inoculate your soil with them, and why creating the right soil ecosystem might be a more effective way to increase the biological activity in your soil. I'll let Emma take it from here. Dr. Miranda Hart is a naturalist and soil biology researcher with UBC Okanagan. In broad terms, her research focuses on what soil microbial communities were like before humans arrived on the scene and whether we can save what we've still got. Her research is very exciting. Soil biology is a world where we're just beginning to peer into, and there's so much opportunity and so many questions. And Dr. Hart's research covers a lot of ground. So everything from the effect of living mulches on soil microbe communities to whether commercial inoculants could potentially result in unintended negative consequences to environmental microbes and the colonization of the infant gut and so much more. In 2019, I had the pleasure of spending a few days on organic viticulture operations, and so many of the growers I spoke with referenced Dr. Hart. It seems she has some really positive and mutually beneficial relationships with growers that is leading to a lot of inspiration. So I'm so excited to have this chance to learn from you, Dr. Hart, and I think a lot of the growers in the organic community will also really enjoy hearing from you. Great. Well, it's really good to talk to you today. Yeah. So you began focusing your research on soil microbes over 20 years ago now. Um, what led you to pursue this field of research? I mean, it's funny. Sometimes I think about it and I like, I spent all my time thinking about soil microbes and I don't know if anyone sets out to do that. Certainly when I was a kid, that wasn't my goal. And sometimes I, I wonder how it happened. So I was doing my master's in forest ecology because I absolutely just love forest. Um, but I was in forestry, so if you're a forest ecology, back in, especially back in the 90s, maybe not the best place to be if you're a forest ecologist. I found myself like just swimming upstream against the prevailing culture. 
but this paper came out and it was almost like a message, right? The universe gave me this message. It was a paper and it gets even weirder because the, the authors of these, the paper are now intimately involved in my life. Um, but this paper came out by this group uh, talking about the wood wide web. And maybe some of you guys have heard of it. It was a seminal paper. It was 98 came out in nature and, uh, a, a PhD student, I think she was at the time, Dr. Suzanne Samard, who's just published a book. She was writing about how the trees are connected to each other. The trees in the forest are connected to each other and they communicate through underground mycelia. And that just like blew my mind. I was like, I couldn't even believe that there would be that kind of coordination and reciprocity and almost nurturing that was going on in the, in the, in the soil. And so I, um, I called Suzanne Samard, but at the time, I think she was just doing a postdoc. She was quite young, early in her career, and that didn't go anywhere. And so I just ended up looking for anybody working on, she was, she's a mycorrhizal researcher, right? Mycorrhizal is a fungi that live with roots. Um, and I ended up pursuing a PhD in mycorrhizal ecology because of that paper. And now the funny thing is, she is a mycorrhizal ecologist at UBC Vancouver, um, and you know, I interact with her. We have our colleagues in common. We're on similar projects. But also the other authors on that paper were um, Melanie Jones and Dan Durrell, who are now in the same faculty as I am at UBC Okanagan. So it almost felt like fate that I found that paper. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool that, yeah, you're a lead researcher in this field. And, and um, yeah, you came to it from uh, maybe an, a bit of an indirect route. One thing that I find so exciting about your field is that it's relatively new. I mean, I think when that paper was published, it was, you know, so new. And, and then now it's it's starting to grow. But a big part of the reason that it's new is that the technology um, that we can use to actually see what's going on with soil microbes is quite new. And I heard a quote. I don't know if this is still accurate, but it said that we maybe know only about 5% of the soil microbe species. And even then, we may not totally understand the full role these species play and their interconnections with other species. We are just so limited still in what we're able to see and measure. Um, and I think of you as an explorer of a new dimension. And when I put my scientist cap on and I think about how tricky it could be to go about finding information, I find it quite daunting. So I'm curious to know more about how you go about gathering data and, and how you're making sense of the data you gather when you're kind of, you know, just heading into this new new dimension well i think that's a really important distinction how do you make sense of the data i mean that that statistic you quoted i i hear those stats all the time and they, and they absolutely kill me because there's there's i think they're so random they're completely random yeah. numbers that people pluck out of the universe because <laughs> how could you even like, know if you know five percent if you don't <laughs> yeah, you have no idea yeah. and the, so i just i just wrote a paper forget the net title but it was the original title was called per, uh, sequence at your peril which the other co-authors didn't like and they wanted so we changed the title but the paper's about how soil ecologists were in this kind of terrible situation we've gotten into over the last 10 years because because genomic information has become so widely accessible so cheap and so easy well i say cheap in quotation marks but relatively cheap um everyone's sequencing everything that they can get their hand on and they're they're returning these massive data sets full of millions and millions and millions of 
bits of information. And what does it mean? I mean, does anybody... Okay, so for example, traditionally what I've done is just amplicon sequencing, right? You, you take some soil, extract DNA, and you can say who's there, right? You can, and you can have mm-hmm. a rough idea of how many of each different kind of organism is there. And that's like, that's the very basic, most simple kind of analysis you can do. But even that, we still don't know if what we're returning on those species. So let's say I take a gram of soil and I get 6,000 different species of fungi, which is totally normal, right? You get a gram of soil, 6,000 different species of fungi. But are they actually 6,000 different species? Or is the variation we're seeing representative of a different level of resolution? Are they subspecies? Are they just genetic variants? And because most of these sequences don't have, or a lot of these sequences don't have matches in any databases, they're new to science. And we don't know if they're like a new species or are they just ecotypic variation within a species. And I think people are too, at least people that I have, I've worked with and people that I meet at conferences, they're, they're almost too accepting of this data as something meaningful when I really, really struggle to see what the information is in it. Now, you said at the beginning of this question, you said how this is a relatively new field. And I would say the molecular era of this field is like, what, 25 years old or something? Mm -hmm. So it's new. But if you go back to the, um, you know, the people have been looking at soil microbes since the 1600s, since microscopes were invented. And I almost wonder if the information we get from that kind of old school microscopy and old school physiology if those lines of evidence aren't more meaningful or more, they explain more about how these ecosystems work rather than just sequences. I get really frustrated by it and I feel hobbled by it in a way. I mean, everyone was so excited. It was molecular revolution. We're going to open up the black box of science and figure out how things work. And I think eventually, hopefully when, when we really can pull apart functional processes and attach them to um, species or whatever levels of taxa we're interested in. That'll be great, but we're not, we're not there yet. I mean, people are working on it, but we're just not there yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like too, the, you have all the data, but it's just too soon to really understand or make sense of all those big data sets. I don't know. I could sound like a real um, fatalist because, I think that the diversity in soil is so outrageously hard to even comprehend Mm -hmm. spatially, temporally, genetically, ecologically. There's so much variation. I almost wonder sometimes if it's important to be a reductionist and to pull it all apart and to count it and to enumerate it, or should we be looking at it in a different way? I mean, I guess that just tells you what kind of brain I have, right? I have a brain that likes to look at things, processes and things together as opposed to all the little bits. Well, I think that makes so much sense. Like the interconnections is what we're really interested in. And that's the, that's difficult to see what's not just like who's there, but what they're doing, how they're interacting with each other. You know, that those are the big questions. Yeah. I just don't know that by getting lists of functional genes and, and genomes and organisms, 
I don't know if that's actually going to tell us how soils work. And mm-hmm. I think ultimately that's what we're interested in, mm-hmm. right? Is how do these ecosystems work and how are they connected to all the other ecosystems? And I don't know if the reductionist system is going to get us there, but I, I don't have an alternative, so I guess I shouldn't complain. Yeah, but it, it would be so amazing if we could just like have like a like a reality TV show version of understanding what the soil microbes are doing. Just be filming okay, them. You, you write that one up and produce it. I'll, I'll be an advisor. Awesome. <laughs> and so as we are learning about the incredible feats that soil microbes are capable of, you know, what they're, what they're doing, just some of maybe the very many functions that they do. Um, I think it's so natural to want to ensure you have those microbes working in your system. I remember getting so excited about soil biology when I did a field school in Cuba. And when I got back home and was farming, I was just super excited about getting biofertilizers and compost teas. Um, But I also kind of felt like uneasy because I just felt like I didn't know very much and I didn't know where to go for the information. And I was kind of wondering, like, are these working? Um, Is this, you know, worth my time to be putting these out? I had the pleasure of working on some really long established organic farms. So I was like, well, do they already have everything they need? Are these connections already here? And then something that I've seen that you've touched on both in your academic work, but also in an article you wrote for the Canadian Organic Grower as one example is, could there be unintended consequences of deliberate inoculations with microbes? Um, And so, yeah, I'd really like to hear more about your thoughts on, um, you know, for farmers who are like so excited about partnering with soil biology, but maybe just things that we should be thinking about. I mean, so you see, there's a lot of stuff I got to unpack from what you just said, but I guess I'll start with the fact that yeah, farmers are great. Farmers care about their soils and they love their soils and they are so, at least the farmers I work with are so dedicated to improving their soils and making them the best they possibly could be. The problem is, you're, you're, you're right. How do you know? How do you know what's in your soil? How do you know what you need in your soil? And do you actually need to add anything? I mean, a lot of what farmers do that make a big difference in their soil is they add um, carbon, right? They add par- mm-hmm. primarily just carbon. And, yeah, they add these um, activated microbial complexes that, that I don't know what's happening with those. Nobody knows what's happening with those. But a lot of the time, I think what's happening is you're adding a lot of nutrients with them, and, and that's what's making... Um, that's what's making a difference for your productivity or your soils. Well, where I'm going with this is there's two things, right? Farmers really want to be able to monitor and develop healthy soils, whatever that means. And I think just even that term, healthy soils, is really problematic because it's too vague, right? I mean, a farmer who's producing an annual crop who wants, like, big yields is going to have very different health requirements from a soil than someone who wants to restore like a shrub step grassland, right? So that it's not going to be the same thing, right? You're going to need different things. You're going to need, a, like farmers are going to need as much as they don't, you know, regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture, all of these things are high input and they're not high input of like synthetic biocides and fertilizers, but they're high inputs in terms of organic material. So that's one, and I don't have the data for you or the information for you to tell you whether or not farmers should be using microbial additives Mm -hmm. because we don't know. We don't know. And it depends on the soil. 
And I always tell farmers that if you have healthy plants, if you have somewhat, if you have try to encourage as many different kinds of plants on your land as possible. That's the best way to ensure that you've got a robust microbial community. And that's probably good enough. If you've got plants that are happy on your land, then you're probably doing okay. You don't have to worry about microbes. I really don't. I really am suspect of these like designer microbes that say they're going to do things for you because I know that we don't know what microbes do. We know that microbes are important, but we can't say yet what a specific microbe does. So if a company is selling you a microbe for your potato crop, for example, well, I feel that's false advertising because we don't know any we don't know if there are specific potato microbes and i can tell you right now there aren't specific potato microbes there's a ton of microbes that'll help the potatoes but most of them are probably in your soil i mean okay all the industry reps are going to hate this and that's okay that's okay because somebody has to ask these questions because Mm -hmm. we don't have the data to support it Mm -hmm. i mean i'm working on cannabis right now and um cannabis is such a funny crop because there are, it's, you know, such a highly um, manipulated crop, artificially grown crop, right? Or at least traditionally, um, there are so many microbial products in the market for it. And yet we're not able to get any of them to colonize these plants whatsoever. Wow. The, the plant, yeah, the plant doesn't want to grow with these microbes because the plant doesn't need the microbe because the micro, you know, these plants are just swimming in nutrient broths, right? And they have these sterile growing conditions. So it's just, it's frustrating for me to see all these products with these claims that I know are not tested. So that's one part of the story, right? We don't even know if we need or if we should have these products. And I'm, I'm not going to put like, like condemn all of them because sure, maybe there are some cases they could be useful and we need them, but we don't know when and where those situations are. Mm-hmm. And my other, and as you said, the other thing to think about is, well, you're introducing an invasive species because if it's not invasive, it's not going to colonize your soil. So you, you want it, you want these microbes to be invasive if you're selling a microbial product or if you're making a microbial product in your, in your garage over the winter, like so many, you know, there's so many farmers around here that are making their own tinctures. Mm-hmm. But if, if they're not invasive, they're not going to work. So if they are invasive, well, what are they going to do to indigenous communities in your soil or what are they going to do to the indigenous communities in the soil in the forest that's bordering your property or the grassland that's bordering your property because these microbes move we know that microbes move globally they don't they're dispersed in the water they're dispersed in the air currents i mean there's evidence of our buscular mycorrhizal fungi from the gobi desert in california just from air currents alone so it's it it just makes me very nervous that we have such an embryonic understanding of how these communities function and how they are distributed among the globe. And yet people are moving them around and introducing these invasive species. It just makes me very uncomfortable and, and very nervous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I think that's a good point about how you're saying it's, we want them to be invasive so that they work that means they're working we don't want the ones that like you said on the cannabis plants are just not even colonizing at all Um, right so then you're just buying something it's just a waste of your money but then if they do work what does that mean are we creating like as you you made a reference to the cane toad example in australia you know we don't want to we don't want to do that to our soil um and we don't want to hurt the wild areas that neighbor organic farms that's definitely not the intent of organic farming 
No, no, I know. And I know, and I know these people, people, well, that, but the problem is people don't, I mean, it's pretty obvious even being living in this pandemic, that people have a really poor understanding of how microbes work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, all these people who are worried about masks, well, microbes move and they move quickly and you don't need very much of them to cause a big problem. All right, so it's time to take another walk through the conference trade show. And ah, I see over there a booth called Local Line. Uh, <laughs> Sarah Fisher, thanks a lot for joining me to talk about Local Line. Well, thanks for having me. Sarah, let's just start with what's Local Line? Excellent. So, Local Line is an e commerce platform that is dedicated to local food. So, we focus on ensuring our platform can support farmers, farmers markets, and food hubs deliver their high quality food and products to customers who are dedicated to shopping in their communities. You sign up for an account and you can add your products so that you have your inventory in place. You can also then create customers or import your existing customers. Then they get to enjoy some local yummy food right from a quick online purchase. Tell me about inventory, because as a, as a as a grower who has used uh, various platforms and is continues to use local line, um, inventory management is really important. So, can I make sure I don't oversell? Like, do I, so I have I have like very precise inventory management with your software? Absolutely. So, when you add product to your store, you're able to set an inventory count. And the other really cool feature is that you can set a reminder for when you are low stock. So if you want to ensure that you don't overcommit, you can make sure that you're never selling something that you are low or out of stock on. So Sarah, could you, we, we better also talk about the other big part of local line software that I don't understand as well, which is what the, the part that allows groups of farmers to sell together in a couple different ways. Could you describe that? Absolutely. So we also have a market style product and a, and a hub style product. And what these allow customers to do is band together, so to speak, and create a shopping experience for their customers and a vendor experience for themselves that might um, differ slightly. So in, in one use case, there is one entry point and what a customer does when they log in, they're able to see each of the vendors that is part of that market and can shop independently from each vendor and order from each vendor. But there's one centralized login experience for the customer. Now, alternatively, our platform can also be set up in a way so that a customer signs in and all the vendors are included, but they complete the customer completes only one checkout. So they have one order, one cart, one checkout. And then it's on the association side or or that hub or group side to distribute the the payments accordingly. That's really cool, Sarah. And we haven't even talked about uh, something kind of cool. It's a Canadian company. You betcha. <laughs> we are we are based out of Kitchener, Ontario, and we um, we have team members throughout the country. Sarah, thanks a lot for talking to me about Local Line. Thank you so much. <laughs>
And somehow Sarah and I forgot to mention the website, which is localline.ca. No, no, I know. And I know, and I know these people, people will, but the problem is people don't, I mean, it's pretty obvious even being living in this pandemic that people have a really poor understanding of how microbes work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, all these people who are worried about masks, well, (laughs) microbes move and they move quickly and you don't need very much of them to cause a big problem. So what do you think? So one thing I kind of started to move away from bio fertilizers as a farmer for these kinds of concerns like are they working um, and will they kind of be a negative consequence of I remember I was using this product that was from Japan and I was talking to a lot of other farmers that were using it and then I was kind of like hmm like we're gonna all have these microbes from Japan <laughs> that's strange like I crazy wonder, isn't it yeah it's kind of crazy it is yeah. and I was like well I wonder what microbes are here like nearby and that's when someone introduced me to Korean natural farming which for listeners who may not be familiar with it it's a system of techniques that introduce indigenous microorganisms from nearby wild spaces into a garden soil so I was doing things like putting rice out in the forest or the grasslands near my farm and then culturing some of those microbes and putting them back into the soil Um, and in my mind I was like well maybe I didn't I still didn't know if it was working but I felt like I may be minimizing the risk of doing, you know, bringing a really invasive species from far away into the system. Um, but then I well, also I guess did, like, hmm? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just also didn't know if I maybe was colonizing a species I didn't want in high numbers and then putting that into my system. And so well, I guess yeah. I was going to ask you, what what were you hoping to achieve by doing that what are we trying to do that's a great question I was hoping to support I guess I was thinking oh I'm in boosting my natural soil biology in my farm because I heard that you know even in organic farming I was trying to do low till and um, put lots of organic matter back into the soil but I just knew that I was maybe having a negative effect on the soil biology and I wanted there to be all that, all those good players in there. Um, so I was kind of doing it for a similar reason that I was doing compost tea sprays before. I was wanting to support the plants and being connected to the soil environment, have these kind of helpers to either help them forage for nutrients or um, water or different things like that, help them prevent disease. And so I was thinking, hmm, maybe the nearby areas will have some of the microorganisms that my soil is now missing. So maybe I should be culturing and then bringing them in. But I also had a lot of questions. I wasn't convinced that it was, you know, going to work, but I just thought it might be better than bringing in microorganisms from Japan, for instance. Well, I think I think your motivation is, is spot on. I mean, you want you want high soil biodiversity and you want it to be as native as possible right and I think it's a good instinct that yeah there might be higher diversity in the surrounding natural landscape than in your agricultural field but I guess my question would be why um if you're using rice what you're going to do is you're just going to culture decompose or fungi and maybe some bacteria that can decompose the relatively simple carbohydrates 
that you find in right. rice. And then you're going to introduce, so it's, I don't think you're going to hurt anything, but it, it just depends on what, like if you felt like you didn't have enough decomposition in your field, then, right. then that might help. But I don't know. Um, I don't know that. that <laughs> I don't know sense. what. Like it depends on really, what you want. You're right? not really bringing in the the bacteria that maybe is living at the plant root and is serving a lot of these functions right. that we read about. Right. I, I mean, it. I mean, I think like definitely there's microbes that live in the plant. There's microbes that live on the plant. There's microbes that live just in that thin, thin layer of soil that's the root um, soil interface. And then there's microbes that only live in the bulk soil. And so all of these microbes, even within those broad um, guilds, there's going to be different functions of microbes. But I'm wondering if if what you might be more concerned about are the microbes that are interacting more uh, intimately with the plant. And you might, I don't know if decomposers are going to be the best bet for that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So you'd almost, not that this would work, but you'd almost want to be like, planting a cat well not a brassica but planting a crop in the forest or wild area and then once it was doing better bringing it back to your field and then maybe some of the biology that was there would come back into your garden soil that would be a better bet yeah than i mean myself. yeah i mean you could you could do you could just bring yeah you could transplant right transplant something mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be it could be anything or even easier you could just take some soil from the forest and put it oh. in your plot Awesome. Right. I don't okay. think it, I don't think it has. It doesn't I mean, have to be just, too complex. You just grab a handful of soil and mix it in. Maybe, maybe. You know, I don't know. We don't know how much you'd need, or you know, I don't know how. I, but I think it could be that easy, right? I think it could be that easy. You just need some inoculum. You mm-hmm. just need a few propagules, maybe to get started. Mm-hmm. I think it could be easy. I don't know. I had somebody come to my office a couple of years ago. I was just thinking about them the other day. They had this beautiful piece of land um they'd inherited that was old growth cedar and they were coming to me because they were trying to harvest and market the topsoil so they were just removing the topsoil putting it in bins and bringing it and to market as as like this great growth enhancer which you know and there's probably a lot of really good stuff in that topsoil but wow talk about destructive mm-hmm. practices right i mm-hmm. just couldn't couldn't go there with them but but in some ways they had the right idea that that layer that that top layer of soil is going to be really full of interesting propagules whether or not they're going to be the best propagules for uh like intensive farming operation versus an old growth cedar forest though right that's another thing we like we don't know we don't know we don't know i guess if you think about an old growth forest these plants go really slowly they have nutrient limitations microbes that grow with cedars might not be great for growing with annual crops yeah that makes we don't know we don't know and they're more in forests it's more about breaking up leaf litter at the top of the soil and yeah right yeah it's it's complicated right it's really really complicated and people want there to be this really elegant beautiful solution that is so and it seems so beautiful right like Mm -hmm. Just add microbes. We have a nice community, but we don't, you know, we hardly know the plant communities on the planet well enough, right, to really understand how they work. But, you know, we we do. We understand how rainforest works versus a desert versus a grassland. We understand the ecological processes that keep those systems sustainable. And 
we don't know that about soil organisms yet. Mm-hmm. We just don't. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get in such trouble with all this soil biologists. Because we know so, we do know a ton about soil yeah. biology, a ton. Yeah. We just Well, it's just know such a big world. It's such a yeah. big world. So even when you know a ton, there's still, you still don't know stuff. And there's, I think in any field, there's things you don't know that you don't know. And that's right, like, why. Okay, so I've been talking about fungi and a little bit about bacteria, but what about protists, right? Protists are hugely important in soil ecosystems. And there are so few people that work in protist ecology. So we even, even protist taxonomy to understand how many there are. Or viruses. What is the role of viruses in these soil ecosystems? I mean, I have a feeling viruses are so important in regulating the entire food web in soil ecosystems. But gosh, I know maybe two people who work in that area in the whole world. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's, there's so many things we need to figure out. Yeah. Yeah, before we go in there and we're messing around too much. I think the appeal of the product is that it kind of can, in some ways, you know, replace another thing. So you're like, okay, well, I used to put in this fertilizer, but now I'm putting this in. You know, it just feels safer. It feels good. It feels good, but it's so completely unsubstantiated that I I feel it's unfair to tell that to growers because... I get tested so many of these inoculants and largely the effect is they come with growth enhancers, Mm -hmm. which could be nutrients, which could be like aloe, which could be all these other things that are actually actively enhancing growth. It's not the microbes. So I just feel that it's kind of wishful thinking that we're going to add microbes into a system that probably already has microbes and see this dynamic Mm-hmm. dramatic effect I mm-hmm. just feel like it's wishful thinking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you kind of mentioned earlier there are things that farmers can do to support soil microbe communities that does not include adding a biofertilizer um, mostly focusing on building up soil carbon um, can I you mean, speak more I, I think yeah I think soil carbon is is really important for productivity as I mean because that's what's going to keep the soil food web mm-hmm. intact mm-hmm. and cycling right but it doesn't have to just be amendments right I mean I think amendments are great in some situations I think you can add mulch and compost and all that stuff is good but not in all situations so I think the easiest I think the safest and most sustainable is to manipulate the plant cover mm-hmm. I think that has a bigger effect and a more sustainable effect and a more profound effect on, on microbial communities than ever just adding. Cause you add a plant, if you add a plant, you're adding the exudates from that plant. You're adding all the organisms who live on that plant and who depredate that plant and who pollinate that plant. And you're also adding that plant's going to break down and turn into more recalcitrant material that's going to get broken down. So you're adding all these different layers to the soil food web rather than if you just add compost or if you just mm-hmm. add mulch. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, you can't do that in big industrial-sized farms. You can't do that. So right. in those cases, oh, in those cases, I don't even think it's worth even talking about microbes because the farming right. that you need to practice at that scale is so, you know, you have to add nutrients. You have to add herbicides. You have to add fungicides. I don't think your microbes would even establish in those situations. I don't know. Right. Don't like know. what you're trying I mean, to do is just so far away from partnering with nature it doesn't make sense to try to do it at this biological level. Um, I mean, I mean, I co- so I have done a lot of work on big 
um, cereal crops. I just finished like a, a four-year study in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And it was an inoculation study using a, a native versus a commercial inoculant in a, I think it was a three-crop rotation. And um, the inoculum established really, really well. And within the first season, it had spread throughout the whole plot. Um, but there was no effect on crop performance at all. Mm. So, yeah, I think you're just, you're giving the plants all they need, but they don't really, adding microbes isn't going to help them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it sounds like cover crops or hedgerows or that sort of thing has some real potential for the farmers that are at a scale. They're able to yeah, do that. Yeah, or intercropping, both mm-hmm. crop rotations for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, but these are all things humans have known forever, right? Since yeah. humans began practicing agriculture, it's nothing new and exciting. And I mean, yeah. I was in Costa Rica a couple of years ago talking to um, a, a guy who ran an experimental farm and he was doing such cool things. But it's like, well, what are you talking about? People have been doing this for 10,000 years. Yeah. It's, not, it's not new. And it's like, yeah, you're right. They have. Why did we forget about it? Yeah. Yeah, it's about getting back to the basics, and that will take care of our soil biology. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think, honestly, I think if you just take care of take care of your plants, you'll take care of your soil in, indirectly, right? It's like that whole thing, if you save an ecosystem, you'll take care of the endangered species. I think if you just take care of your... But then you could say that the other way. You could say if you take care of your soil, your plants will be okay. So mm-hmm. which which one do you take care of? <laughs> yeah, I guess you by taking care of the the soil, you're feeding the soil biology. You're taking care of the plants. It works yeah. out. What? Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think the biggest paradigm shift is people could just. I wish people could see who's living down there mm-hmm. because these creatures are so charismatic and crazy and beautiful and wild. And they have such crazy communities and interactions. I, w- I just wish people could understand when they, that underground, like they're, it's alive. It's alive. I wish you could feel it. Like it's too small for us to perceive in a meaningful way. But if people could just feel the life below them, I think we'd treat our souls better. Yeah, I love that. I love thinking about them as charismatic characters. They are. I mean, they're crazy little creatures. I mean, thinking specifically of the protists, right? Because they're so, they're wild. And and the (laughs) microarthropods, they're wild too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much going on down there all the time. I know. Do you think it's worthwhile for folks to, farmers to measure what's happening in their soil and using just I've heard of some different tests some different people sending things in just to get a a sense of like okay I've been able you know over the last few years I've been doing more cover cropping or um, I've been changing my management practices a bit and I've seen that my soil biology has um, like really diversified I have more numbers or I have uh, you know it's impossible no, to I mean I mean I know I know there are companies out there doing these tests for farmers and um, I could I can do those tests for farmers too, but I don't think they're useful for the farmer because we don't have any idea. First of all, the farmer cannot possibly sample extensively enough to get a good idea of what their natural heterogeneity is on their site. Mm-hmm. Right, their soil is if you move a centimeter to the right or a centimeter deeper, 
you're going to get a completely different, like I'm talking completely different story of who's there and what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it depends what time of the day. It depends on what month. It depends on so it depends on the weather. I mean, they would have to sample so intensively and they would have to do it over time, like over years to see, okay, what is the natural variation? Okay. So now that I understand the natural variation, I've changed this cropping practice. Now I can see how that's changed my microbial um, community. Mm -hmm. Nobody has time or resources to do that. So I think it's so much more meaningful for farmers just to pay attention to the end result, right? Like, what are your nutrient levels like? What is your organic carbon doing, right? What's your nitrogen doing? What is your, and if they're really keen, they can look at phosphatase activity and, and physiological things like that, right? That's how fast are these um, nutrients turning on over. That gives them so much more to work with, right? If you look at processes, I don't think that I honestly, you know, I love soil biology more than any, you know, most people on the planet. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any point for farmers to to do those tests, okay, tests whatsoever. Can you... Oh, I'm just getting in so much trouble today. <laughs> I think this is really great though for farmers to hear. I know, like, I'm like, okay, this makes me feel. Like I'm, you know, been was doing the right things and, um, you know, it was fun to experiment, but that it was okay that I wasn't spending this money on getting these tests done. And I, I yeah, think I think you it's can great. invest your money in so, so much more wisely, right? Mm-hmm. And things that'll actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're curious, I mean, it's kind of like sequencing your own microbiome, right? It, it's kind of cool. What's, what's in there? But if you sequence it once, it's not really going to tell you that much about yourself. Like a snapshot, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was that test you mentioned, the phosphase test or something that you said maybe more worthwhile? That was the first time. Oh, yeah. Just looking at, like, the, you know, there's organisms that break down phosphorus in the environment and make it la- label for plants to pick up. And so you could measure that enzyme, right? And there's people, that, that's a super easy test. You could probably, I don't know if farmers could do it themselves, but you get these papers that change color. You put them in the soil and they change color and the color tells you how much phosphatase activities in soil so that that, that's a really good measure of um you know an important function that microbes do in the soil so oh wow you want high phosphatase activity right because you want the microbes to be breaking down the organic inorganic phosphorus yeah oh that's really cool yeah i I mean that's like that's what i said at the beginning there's these old school techniques that are actually incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. and meaningful and Mm -hmm. useful that people have kind of gotten the right bamboozled by the molecular data that I just think yes we have to continue working on this molecular frontier and un- really understanding um, these systems from a molecular basis but in right now in terms of practicality I think farmers are way better off um, sticking to physiology yeah that's great to know I noticed on your web page your lab web page that there's some folks in your lab or someone in your lab who's working on the kind of soil health but human health as well and looking at the human gut what's that been like taking it from soil biology to human oh so this is this is something i thought about and it occurred to me a long time ago right it occurred to me and it occurred to me primarily because both of my kids were cesarean sections and i always and in japan they actually um at least I've been told this. I don't know how pervasive it is, but in, at least in some places in Japan, as soon as a child is born, they inoculate that child with the mother's microbiota, right? So they take a swab and stick it down the kid's throat. And so the kid immediately doesn't have a hospital bugs. It has mother bugs, which they're supposed to get if they have a vaginal birth. My kids didn't get that. And I always felt really terrible about that. 
then I started thinking, well, um, you know how there's these, um, I think it's feel like the blue zones they're called, right? These places on the earth where people live to be so old, like Costa Rica is one of them, Greece is one of them. Uh, I can't remember the rest of them. But it's like, what is it about these places that make these people so healthy? And I was thinking, well, what about, what if the microbes they inherit at birth somehow confer them these really big health advantages? So I was trying to see if healthy soils can confer healthy humans, right? Because where else would we get our microbes from the soil, right? Even if we get them from our mother, our originally all the microbes we have in our body come from the soil. And I was wondering, well, does that make a difference? Should we? So, so I, so I designed the study where we had, I took really wild natural soils inoculated mice with them. And then we, <laughs> I got some soil from a city lot, which is basically just sweeping up soil from the street at a busy intersection in Corona. And we um, inoculated some mice with them and let them have babies and rear their babies in those soils. And that paper should be coming out really soon. I mean, it was the first paper, so it was just kind of exploratory. So we needed, we didn't quite get at the question we wanted to, but there were definitely, definitely the microbes were different in the, in the soils. And, and there were certain differences in the organisms and there were certain immune differences in the organisms. So it seems like there's something there, but of course we need to do more studies. Wow. That is so cool. It's really, yeah. Really cool to hear you taking it from that, making that link from soil health to human health. And um, yeah. yeah, excited to see more more studies coming out in that field. Yeah, no, we, well, we've got another study looking at um, glyphosate, right? Because in, indirectly, it's kind of the same question, only glyphosate, it will influence, if we eat glyphosate, which we do as crop residues, how does that affect your gut microbe and how does that affect your health? Is, mm-hmm. there, is there a health consequence of eating Glyphosate, not because glyphosate is toxic to humans, but because glyphosate is toxic to our microbes. To our microbes, yeah. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then our microbes. That's really cool to hear that um, almost all our our microbes are the same as what's in the soil. Like we are, we're so connected to soil. You know, and I remember when I first got yeah. into soil, it was be I was so interested in that continuum of like they realized that healthy people were on people that were fertile soil and they had good teeth and people who were on you know, infertile soil had more health conditions or health issues. And um, it's just like, wow, it makes sense that that would, uh, you know, expand to soil biology too. But I just haven't seen much in that. Uh, yeah, but it, it's kind of, I almost don't want to think about it too much when you think about how most of the world lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just mm-hmm. no chance for us to live that closely with nature anymore, sadly. Or when you do, it's nerve wracking. Like my son is in the stage where he's putting everything in his mouth and yeah. I'm like, what's in there? You know, like I think his instinct is so spot on because he's, you know, he wants to eat sand when we're at the beach, for instance. He's inoculating exactly. himself. The little guy's inoculating Exactly. Himself. I was like, okay, this is a good instinct. But I'm like, but what is in this sand? You know, at uh, Cal Beach in Vernon where there's like hundreds of people there. And I I'm know. Like, oh, my I gosh. Know. It's not the sand. It's not the exactly. sand. It's the people that you're worried exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, do I let him eat it or not? <laughs> New mom anxiety. <laughs> so, yeah, I hear you. You don't want to think about it too much. Uh, it's beautiful to see babies in instincts are so spot on but our world is so different than it was when we were evolving first evolving well thank you so much again i really enjoyed talking to you 
This was great. No, I love I love getting the chance to talk about this stuff anytime. Awesome. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your day. And I'm sure I'll okay. be in touch soon with more soul questions. <laughs> okay, thanks, Emma. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. That's it for now. Special thanks for our podcast music goes out to Matt Eckel, a jazz flutist and father of organic rancher Aubin Banwell. You can search for Matt's music online. Eckel is spelled E-A-K-L-E. I also want to thank all of the guest interviewers you'll be hearing in this series as we re-release it over the next few months. Gavin Wright, Molly Thurston, Abra Bryn, Tristan Banwell, and Emma Holmes. Thanks to all of you for your contributions to the show. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. I'm Jordan Marr, and I will talk to you soon.